Some things in life are unexplainable. Some things you have to see to understand, and even then you really don't quite understand what you saw. Uh, one such instance you'll see up here is the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. It's just amazing. No matter how many times I watch videos that will kind of fast forward and show this not-so-pretty caterpillar become this beautiful butterfly, it's just, just incredible to see that that metamorphosis. It's too hard to even describe it in words, but today we're going to see something that makes that look like nothing. We're going to be talking about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ that occurred some 2,000 years ago on this earth. Uh, Jesus was shown in his glorified state. Uh, how can we put such an amazing event, unfathomable, into words? Uh, join me as we attempt to glean what we can from this unfathomable fathomable event recorded in the Gospel of Luke. It's going to be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. It will be up here, or if you have your Bible, you can turn there with us as well. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes, clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Uh, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they uh, became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And, and he, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for allowing us to study it, to hear it, to read it. Lord, we just, we just thank you. I don't want to take that for granted. In some countries, it's illegal to have this book in front of me. But God, we're able to freely buy it, freely read it. Yet studies have continued to show that the Bible is the most bought book and the least read per copies out there. It's just so unfortunate that you have given us your word. May, may we not be a church like that. May we not be a people like that. May we be a people of your word who read it. It is your personal word. It is all about you. And so God, may, may we enjoy it. May, may you open up our, our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts to take in what you have for us today. And may you illuminate the scriptures for us and help us to understand it as well as we can. Lord, we love you, praise you, and thank you. And amen. So today we're going to see three ways in which Christ is glorified. And the first point is Christ is forever crowned with glory. Christ is forever crowned with glory. I'm going to reread verse 28 now. About eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. Now we're looking at about six to eight days after last week's sermon. If any of you all were here then, uh, we saw the, the charge to take up one's cross and follow after Christ. We saw Peter's confession that Christ is the Messiah. Now we're looking at about six to eight days. The reason I say six to eight, we're probably looking at six. Matthew and Mark actually tell us six days. Luke says about eight days. Those don't contradict. It's like saying about a week is kind of what he said. So they are consistent still. And we're told that Jesus takes three of his disciples with him. The inner three, the inner three of the circle. 
and he takes them. These are the same three, Peter, James, and John, and Luke 8, 51 through 55. If you recall, the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead, this is the same three that he allowed to see that. And so he takes those three up onto a mountain top to pray. And again, we see Jesus praying to his heavenly Father. As I've, as I've studied the book of Luke from beginning to end, I see at least seven times that Jesus is found praying, not to mention the times that he speaks of prayer elsewhere. I've included all those references if you want to look through it. Obviously, Jesus consistently prayed to the Father. Many times, we, don't, we obviously don't have every example that he, he prayed, but he was a great example of prayer. Now, I know that prayer is probably one of the hardest spiritual disciplines. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's probably the, the toughest because, you know, you read the Word. We've talked about this before. Uh, you know, say, I'm going to read the book of Luke over the next month. Well, you can see that you accomplished that task. You've read all through the book of Luke. Yet with prayer, where does it end? It, we're to pray without ceasing. We'll actually talk about it in a little while. So we have a hard time of measuring and gauging how well we're doing in prayer. So it becomes a really hard spiritual discipline because it's hard to, to measure that. Yet, yet prayer is how we commune with God, our Creator. It's how we interact with him. It should empower us. It should strengthen us. It should sustain us and encourage us. So when Jesus was tired and worn out in his physical body, where did he go but to the Lord in prayer? Uh, we, we're going to see these disciples are so tired from climbing this mountain that, they are, that they're falling asleep. Jesus instead goes to his heavenly Father. It's empowered by him as we see. May we follow his example. Yet this time of prayer, we see the, the prayer of Jesus multiple times, but this time of prayer is a little different. And we're going to see that in verse 29. Listen to this. So as he was praying, okay, that's normal so far. It says, the appearance of his face was what? Altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. So we're told two things here in your handout. His, his, his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, interestingly, you, Luke uses the word altered instead of transfigured. Uh, that, we're going to talk about that word for transfigured in a moment. But he uses the word altered. And most commentators think, Luke's writing to a primarily Gentile audience, not primarily to them. And so they may have taken that metamorpho that we're going to talk about in a minute uh, as a, in, in paganism. And that was kind of a common thing in there. She so kind of avoided that most likely because of that. But whatever the reason, Jesus was transfigured and his face was altered. They're both correct. He appeared in his glorified state. Uh, hearing this may kind of start to, if some of you are Bible readers, you might think about Moses and Ex Exodus uh, Exodus 34, 29 through 35, Moses, after communing with God, comes down from the mountain, and what, what's wrong with his face? It's shining. The Shekinah glory of God is now reflecting off of him to where they have to put a veil over his face because people are terrified to go near Moses. They're like, dude, your face is shining. I can't, can't handle it. It's too much. So you have to wear a veil. And, and although there is definitely a direct correlation here of the Shekinah glory, we're seeing that there's a big difference between Moses and Jesus in this setting. So Moses was reflecting whose glory? God's glory. So, so he was reflecting it, kind of like the moon reflects the sun. The moon doesn't have any light in and of itself. It's just a big rock. But, but when the sun hits it and reflects back to earth, it looks bright. And that was Moses. Jesus is shining not from the outside out. He's shining from the inside out. It is his personal glory that shines through and causes his clothes even to to glow. It's his own personal glory. Jesus gave the disciples a glimpse of his second coming glorified appearance. Listen to this described by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, 
one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Can you imagine how bright that was? Like the sun shining in full strength. Can you imagine John seeing this vision just falling? Like I can't, can't even look there. I mean, obviously, we tell our kids, don't look at the sun, right? It'll tear your vision up. It'll, it'll hurt you. This is shining like the sun in all of its brightness. Can't imagine how amazing that was for these disciples witnessing that type of shining of God, that type of glory of Jesus as he's transfigured. A part of me, a part of me is kind of a little righteously jealous of the disciples. Like, man, wouldn't that be really awesome to see that? To see that? And then part of me is kind of like Isaiah. I don't think so. Like, you know, it's like I realize I'm, I'm a sinful man. And so Isaiah says this after he has a vision of the Lord. He says, and I said, woe is me for I am lost and I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Isaiah thought he was a dead man. He was good as dead because he had just seen the presence of the Lord. I think that's probably how we would respond if we saw a vision like Jesus transfigured. Again, the amazing glory here revealed is beyond our comprehension. As we already alluded to, the word transfigured in Greek is metamorpho, uh, and it means transfigured or transformed. It's only actually used four times in the New Testament. Two of those are for the word transfigured in Matthew and Mark's uh, parallel of this transfiguration. But the other two are, are interesting. It helps us to learn this word maybe a little better of how it applies to us. Obviously, we're not transfigured like Christ. We're not to be glorified like Christ. But it helps us to understand this word. If we look at Romans 12, 2, a very common uh, thing we read, but we don't realize it's the same word here. Uh, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That word transformed there is actually the same word, metamorpho, like metamorphosis, as we see before. So we're not to, we're not to be con- conformed. Conforming things are e- it's pretty easy, right? You just put it in something, and you, know, you get a press, and you press it down. You conform, conform a cookie to a certain thing. You use a cookie sheet. You some, you know, it's really easy to conform certain things. Clay, you're playing with Play-Doh. You can conform things. But transforming something's really hard, right? I, I've never seen anybody be able to take Play-Doh and make something, make a, you know, a bug out of it that was real. You know, we, transforming something only God can do. We can't transform one thing into another. We don't see anything transformed in that way. But our transformation starts, God says, with our minds. He renews our minds through the Word of God and through His Holy Spirit and through prayer. And if we want to discern the will of God, we must allow him to transform our minds and our hearts into his image. Just like that word metamorpho, we see Jesus' glorified body. If we want to understand the things of God, we must be transformed in our minds by God. It's also, if we look, people ask me a lot when they're thinking about, okay, you know, I get that. We're supposed to be transformed, not conformed to the world, transformed. Well, what is God's will for my life anyway? If I'm supposed to be able to, to discern that, we actually talk through this I think it was last year in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. This tells us the will of God so clearly. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's as simple as these three things. Rejoice in the Lord. Give thanks as you pray to the Lord. 
a lot of people were like, well, that seems like a cop-out, right? I mean, that, that's, that doesn't seem deep enough. Like, I want to know what his will for me, what am I supposed to do when you're doing those things, when you're finding your joy in him and him alone. He is your greatest treasure. Uh, when, when you're constantly with him in prayer, you're walking with him day after day, minute by minute, hour after hour. And when you give thanks, for, for you're content with what you have. You're not just trying to chase the rat race of trying to raise the corporate ladder, or you're not doing these things. When you're focused on him and his him alone, he will direct and guide your paths. He, his word is a light unto your path. Trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding, right? In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He will make your path straight. We also see that the last time we see this word used in scripture is 2 Corinthians, so 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And as we are progressively sanctified by the Holy Spirit and through his word, he will continue to make us more and more like him until one day when he returns and takes us to glory, we will be given our glorified bodies. No, it will not look like Jesus exactly. We won't have his amazing glory. We'll never be equal to Jesus, but we will be able to share in the radiance of Jesus Christ. How amazing is that? Actually, we, we look in, in Revelation. Just is so exciting. You know, we'll have no need for the sun. The, the sun won't be needed any longer because Jesus will be the light of heaven. We see that in Revelation 21, 23. Christ is now and forever will be crowned with glory. Yet we also need to see here that before he experiences the glory of heaven again with the Father, Christ must first suffer the cross in glory. So number two, Christ suffered the cross in glory. I'm going to reread verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I don't know about you all, this, this scene has already been way overwhelming. We've just seen Jesus show his glorified state, and at that point I'm like, man, the mic's already been dropped. I don't know how this can get any crazier than it already has been, more amazing than it already has been. And we see not only is there Jesus there, but now we have Moses and Elijah are, are hanging out there as well, and, and they're just talking. You know, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are just chatting on this mountaintop. Just, just am amazing to me. And, and we see why Moses and Elijah, a lot of commentators have spent a lot of time, well, well, Moses is most likely representing the law. You know, we look at the, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He represents the law, while Elijah represents the, the prophets. And they, what did they, the law and the prophets all pointed to who? Jesus Christ. We, we, we see Jesus as the lamb who takes away the world. We see the Passover points to, to Jesus. We see uh, Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, uh, points to, to Jesus. All of the, the sacrifices all pointed to Jesus. And we look at the prophets, they continue to talk about this one to come who would take the sins of the world. And interestingly, both of these men also had mountaintop experiences with God. Remember Moses? We already talked about him coming down from the mountain. With, with the radiance that he had. See that in Exodus 31, 18? Well, Elijah on that same mount, Mount Sinai, also ca called Mount Horeb, uh, is just another name for Mount Sinai, in 1 Kings 19, 8, also had a mountaintop experience with the Lord. And now they're having a mountaintop experience with the Lord yet again uh, during the transfiguration. Many people are, acting, are wondering where this is. It's most likely, uh, a lot of people think it was Mount Hermon, uh, which if we're looking, we were in Caesarea Philippi last time, it would be the closest fairly tall mountain. We're told by Mark and uh, Matthew that it was a high mountain, so that's a pretty high mountain in that area where we saw before. 
Getting back to verse 31, we see that Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus. And what are they speaking about? Luke's the only one that actually tells us that. They're talking about Christ's departure that was to come. It's important for us to note that this is most likely, commentators think that where we're at in Luke's gospel, even though I know we still have a decent bit to go, so we're not even halfway through, we're probably six to eight months from the crucifixion. Uh, So if we're looking there, they're talking about, hey, this is coming up, Jesus. And they're they're discussing that. Uh, We would love to hear what what they said during that. That would be great. In heaven, hopefully, we'll know. Um, But I find it interesting that Luke uses this word departure, which is, and the Greek is exodus or exodus. Uh, this Greek word means departure, course, or even death. So they're discussing his crucifixion, his death, but also his resurrection. Not his just departure to death, his departure to heaven, his ascension that was to come as well. Although Jesus had enjoyed the glory of heaven along with the Father and Holy Spirit for all eternity, there was a greater joy that was to be revealed. And we've talked about this as well in the past. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the Christ hymn. When it's just kind of, listen, this, this may have been some of what they were talking about. Have this, in mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's not where it stops, though. Praise the Lord for that. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. As John MacArthur asserts, the cross had to come before the crown. The cross had to come before the crown. And finally, we see point three, Christ commands exclusive glory. Christ commands exclusive glory. Let's read verses 32 and 33 again. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw the glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from them, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I love Luke's introduction here, not knowing what he said, speaking out of his mind. Uh, So Peter, James, and John are worn out from this this amazing uh, trek that they went up on this high mountain, uh, as, as Mark and Matthew let us know, and due to their heavy fatigue, they're, they're, they're worn out, their bodies are tired, they're heavy with sleep, to the point where they're, they're almost sleeping through the transfiguration. Obviously, they probably slept through part of it already because their eyes are heavy. It's pretty, pretty tired, I would assume. And as they wake up, they start to see Moses and Elijah are departing, and Peter opens up his mouth, and if, if we've studied Luke long enough, we've studied this gospel, when Peter opens his mouth, something really good is going to come out, or something not really good is going to come out. Sadly, this is going to be on that not really good side for Peter. Sleep deprived and exhausted, Peter's not at his best. And uh, he's already struggles even when he's not sleepy. And now we're, we're hearing him say he asserts that it is good that they are all there, and that they should make three tents, one for Jesus and one for each Moses and Elijah as well. Again, we see Peter do what? He steps in the way of the cross, just like he did during the confession after saying, you are the Christ. Just amazing, uh, you know, amazing comment that he made just last week. Right after that, Jesus has to tell him to get behind him, Satan, because he refuses, or because he says, no, you're not going to die. I'm going to fight for you. We're not going to let that happen. And now he's like, hey, there's a mountaintop. This is pretty cool. We just saw you transfigured. We got Moses and Elijah here. Let's just hang out here. 
let's not go back down. Let's just, we'll put some tents up. You know, we're going to hang out here. Let's just stay up here where it's safe. It's safe up here, Jesus. This is good. We got some, you know, we got some help. And oh, how we like safety, don't we? Uh, we've been discussing idolatry in our growth group uh, some, and uh, you know, we, we see these worships of idols and statues, and we just look, that's ridiculous. We would never do that. I will say it's making a comeback in the United States. We, we're actually seeing some people go pagan that way, but most people in America are like, oh no, that's not something I would ever do. But what we do tend to worship in America is safety. We, make, we like to make decisions that are safe, right? I'm not preaching that we should be unwise, we're, we're to be wise as serpents, right? Innocent as doves. I'm not saying we should be reckless with our decisions, so don't hear, don't hear that. But I do think that sometimes we may place safety above obedience to the Lord. I, I, I've heard families of missionaries scold them for taking their kids to unreached people groups because their kids might get harmed. I, I, I've heard other parents scold their children for going to a, a scary area of town. Now, we don't go to the west side of Charleston or we don't go to that part of Huntington because it's not safe. Brothers and sisters, the safest place we can be is in the will of the Father. It is the safest place we can be eternally. Yes, we may lose our life. Jesus stayed on the, the path that was the safest path for him and it led to the cross. It was the, cro- the, the path of obedience. My question for us today in America is what are we really afraid of? Are we afraid of dying? Why, why are we not like Paul in Philippians 1.21 who said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I, I feel like we, we, we fear things that are just not worth holding on to. You know, we talked about, talked about Jim Elliott last week and how he talked about how you, know, you, you can't keep this life anyway. And we talked about how the fact that no matter how hard you hold on to it, no matter how good your doctors are, no matter how good the people around you are trying to keep you alive, you're going to die. We all will die and face the judgment. We all hear that. But, but we work so hard to hold on to this life. And we should take care of our bodies. We should take care of this to glorify God, to be able to use it for Him. Absolutely. But we do it to glorify Him. And the way we glorify Him sometimes is to step into difficult situations, to go to hard places, it's hard as a pastor to preach that. I, John Piper, I was reading a um, thing about him, and he was talking about a missionary family that left his church after they were called to missions, actually during one of his sermons. He preached on something kind of like this, where it was like, hey, we don't need to be afraid. We need to be in the will of God. God may call you to a hard place, and you may die if, if God sends you there, but your safest place is to be in the will of God. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What do we have to, to fear? You know, that couple went... And guess what? They died. And he just remembers feeling that burden of, oh man, they, they left because of what I said. And he had to learn. It wasn't what he said. It was what God said. It is God's word. It's not my word that I'm trying to speak to you. I'm trying to speak, you, speak to you the word of God and what he has for us today, what he says through his word. We're not to fear. Note that Jesus doesn't actually have to step in and rebuke Peter this time like he did last time. The Father instead steps in, which is probably pretty terrifying. It says uh, in, in uh, Luke 9, 34 through 35, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 
So not only was Peter's statement wrong because it, it sought to get Christ off of the path of the cross, but it was also wrong because it seemingly equated Moses and Elijah to Jesus. He was going to make a tent for each one of them, which kind of put them in the same category. Well, there's Jesus, and there's Moses, and there's Elijah, and they're somewhat equal here. And this did not please the Father at all. Uh, the Father is very zealous and jealous for the glory of his Son. He, God can be jealous. People are like, well, I can't worship a God who is jealous. Oprah may have said that. Uh, you know, well, God is jealous because there is nothing more holy than him. I've told people this many times, and I know it's kind of a, a weird, weird kind of description, but if you, if, if you have a child and you set a stake in front of them, and they continue to get up from the stake, and they go out in the backyard and look for what the dog's done in the backyard, and they want to eat that instead, you'd be like, no, no. You'd be like, that's horrible. Don't do that. Get back in here. I have a stake for you. Well, that's what we do when we worship other things other than God. So he's jealous for us because he is the best thing in the world, in the universe, in the history of everything. He's jealous for us because he loves us because to glorify anything else is like going out in the backyard. But yet he is that beautiful, perfect God. And so he's jealous because he loves us. Now when we're jealous, there, there's ways to be righteously jealous and ways to be unrighteously jealous, which is a sermon in of itself. But God is not sinning in that jealousy. It's his love for us. It says, don't worship the statue. Don't worship the golden calf because that cannot deliver you. When you put your worship there, it is a waste of your time. Worship me. I am the one who can sustain you, who loves you with an everlasting love. And as God the Father steps in here, we're told that a cloud, a bright cloud, comes in Matthew 17, 5. It's bright. Another form of the Shekinah glory of the Lord and the cloud overshadows them and encompasses them. And God's voice thunders from the cloud saying that Jesus is his son, his chosen one, and then he commands them to listen to him. I kind of imagine the fear in the disciples' minds right now, especially Peter. Can you imagine Peter? I, I, his knees are knocking. I can't imagine how nervous he is at this point. He's like, I'm going to die. God's just going to off me right here. Here it goes. I, I finally put my foot in my mouth one, last, one too many times and think it's over. But the Father gives us three different points here that we need to kind of focus in on that God says in this short sentence. Jesus is God's Son. Point number one. He is God's one and only Son. Matthew and Mark also include the word beloved before the word Son. This is my beloved Son. And this word for beloved is actually a derivative of agape, meaning unconditional love, valued, and prized. Number two, Jesus is God's chosen one. This is a reference to Jesus being the Messiah, he is the one chosen to do the good work of redeeming all mankind. And finally, we see number three, that Jesus is God's messenger. The book of Hebrews compares Jesus to other messengers that came before him. Uh, we see in Hebrews 1, 4 through 13, Jesus is compared to the angels. I mean, that's a pretty big comparison. Jesus is greater. Jesus is more supreme than the angels. We see him compared to Moses in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Mo uh, he is greater than Moses, which we've already seen here too. He's greater than Joshua in Hebrews 4, 8 through 9, and Aaron the high priest, Hebrews 4, 14 through 5, 10. In each of these cases, Jesus is considered greater and supreme above all. In fact, the book of Hebrews has its thesis statement in the first three verses that we'll read here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom he also or he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power and making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus commands exclusive glory. He is the only way to God. And he is greater than the angels, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, the high priest. He is the exact imprint of God, and he upholds everything. We see here that Jesus is God-made flesh, and his authority and power lasts forever. Again, we get a glimpse of what has come later in the Gospel of Luke that we'll see as we continue going toward the cross. In Hebrews 1, it says, He will make purification for sins by his death on the cross. He will most certainly be exalted, like we saw in the Transfiguration, but it will not be until he completes that road to the cross. And Praise God, he was obedient. Aren't we so thankful for the obedience of Jesus walking that path? He could have said, no, the angels would come and take him away and leave us in our sin. But he completed that road to the cross. And now he is glorified and now we have hope for salvation. And he is the only one who can save us. If we repent of our sins, turn from our sins and turn toward him, we may have eternal life. Just as quickly as this amazing scene is built up to its climax, God himself, the Father, speaking from a cloud, overshadowing them, just like that. It's still. Verse 36, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had just seen. Uh, they suddenly, then suddenly everything goes back to normal. Peter, James, and John remain silent, as recorded in the book of Matthew and Mark. They, they, we find out why. It's because he's told them not to say anything until after he had raised from the dead. There are many reasons that people postulate why Jesus said, don't tell the other disciples, don't tell other people about what just had happened. There's tons of postulations about that. But what is most likely the issue here is that to proclaim his glorification before the crucifixion would be to put the proverbial cart before the horse. There would be a time when he would ascend. There would be a time when he, where he would raise from the dead. It was coming shortly, within six to eight months likely, but it hadn't happened yet. So we, we, they weren't to go ahead and exalt him there because right now he still had to go, he had to focus on the cross. His path was still of death. He wasn't in that glorified state completely in his, man, in his manness, I guess we'll call it. 100% man, 100% God, but he was still 100% man at this point. He still is 100% man, but he's 100% glorified man. Praise the Lord, we will be glorified man one day. Not like him exactly, but similar. But it would be putting that cart before the proverbial horse. He, he wanted the disciples to know, hey, right now we're on a hard road. And 10 of those 11 disciples would be murdered, martyred for him. And right now it wasn't the time to think about that. It was, it was the time to focus on the, on the cross. Yet there would be a time after Jesus had died and rose from the dead that his disciples would talk about the glorification of Jesus, the transfiguration. We actually see that we're going to go through Second Peter. Brother Adam's going to be leading that. I, I highly, highly would love for you all to be here for that, starting this Thursday, actually, um, 6.30 to 7.30. But here's a little preview of the second week that we'll be having, Second Peter 1, 16 through 18. This is Peter looking back at this time where he put his foot in, the foot in his mouth at the exact wrong time. But he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majesty glory, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. We heard ourselves, or we, we ourselves heard this very vo- voice born from heaven, for we were with him, where? On the holy mountain. This is Peter reflecting back on the transfiguration and telling others, believe in him, he is God. The transfiguration was the anticipation of what was to come. Christ would be glorified, and he is glorified now and forever. Yet it would not occur until his journey on the cross was completed. So today's message has been supernatural to say the least. Um, We've seen a preview of God's forever glory, but it's just too hard to put into words. I mean, just to even try to imagine the sun shining in its fullness coming from Jesus Christ himself. How amazing is that? We've seen that the road to the cross has been confirmed by the Father. His departure was at hand. His exodus would occur from this earth. As we consider the magnificence of Christ, I pray that he continues to become bigger and bigger and that you continue to become smaller and smaller, that we have the right perspective. Uh, Today, we have a difficult time seeing Christ for how big that he is because of the busyness of ourselves. We consider our agendas and our opinions mattering most, but yet we see God the Father testify about the greatness of his Son, Jesus Christ, here. We see him command those present there, and may we hear this today as well. If we look back, what does he tell him? He says, listen to him. Friends, may we listen to him. May we obey him, and may we love and glorify him. I want to have just a little time where I have Adam come up and play for a moment so we can just reflect on the transfiguration, reflect on the greatness of Christ. I will end with prayer during this time. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk to you about that. Let me know. Also, if you have something else in your life, just something you need to pray about, feel free to come sit up here, come stand up here, be glad to pray with you about it. doesn't even have to be what we preached on today. Otherwise, may you just think about the goodness of God and the greatness of God.